I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? Are we still on speaking terms? Well, that's up to you. We'll, we'll see how this goes. Well, we got a ton of feedback from last week's episode. I know a lot of people are wondering, will there ever be another 83 weeks? But there is. Last week we covered Starcade 97. This year we're going to cover Starcade 1998. But first, what was the feedback you got from Starcade 97? And how tan are you right now? <laughs> after that, after that podcast, I'm making it a point to stay tan. Um, I got a ton of feedback, brother. I mean, my Twitter feed was... You know, the, the, the NWO episode got a lot of uh, Twitter response. The Bret Hart episode got a shitload of it. But Starcade 97, I think I got more Twitter feedback from that show than anything else we've done so far. It was crazy. Well, just so you know, I'm not done. You know, I, no, I, mean, I know not. you know that. I busted your balls pretty hard in Rochester, and I'm going to keep busting it into the new year. I'm not done. But I do want to talk about Starcade 1998 today. Uh, I guess we should mention that Starcade 98 took place on December 27th at the MCI Center, right there in Washington, D.C., the same home as Starcade 1997. But this time, you guys have a ton of momentum. And I know sometimes here on the show we talk about creatively versus business wise. Business-wise, 1998, your best year you've ever had, right? It it was, but what people need to remember is, you know, tracking revenue and tracking creative or tracking story isn't necessarily done in real time. I think one of the reasons that we were doing as well financially as we were in 1998 had a lot more to do with what we did in 1997 than what necessarily was going on in 1998. We had built a brand, we had built momentum, we had built anticipation, expectation of of great wrestling events, great story, and we were kind of living off the residuals to a certain degree in 1998. Talk to me a little bit about where you are in the Monday Night War, because realistically, you guys dominated 1997, but come April of 98 for the first time, the 83 weeks come to an end and now raw is winning. Were you feeling that creatively by, you know, Starcade 98? You know, if you go back and you, you look at that period of time, that timeline, you look at what was going on in WWF and you look at what was going on in WCW. Clearly in 1997, we had a distinct upper hand. We were kicking our ass. We were waxing Vince McMahon and the WWF like a fucking Brazilian hooker. Oh. All right. But if you also remember, you look at the timeline on or about sometime in November of 97, there must have been some kind of epiphany that occurred. Screw job. No. When Vince McMahon came out on camera, and I mean, I don't do as good of a Vince McMahon impersonation as Bruce Pritchard, but 
as Vince McMahon comes out and he looks into the camera and says, all right, wrestling fan, WWF fans, we want you to know that we're going to embrace an entirely new creative formula. We're going to open up the creative horizons in order to give you exactly what you, the fans, want. Whatever his his promo was at the time, what he was really saying was, okay, we've been getting our asses kicked by you know Nitro and NWO for about a year and a half. We're sick of this shit, so we're going to change it up. That's that, that that was my interpretation, or at least it is now. But what that was the beginning, and it made fans want to see or anticipate what that big change was going to be. Right. And, you know, in true Vince McMahon form, he paid it off, you know, in a massive way with Mike Tyson, which launched the whole, you know, Steve Austin, so-called Steve Austin versus Mr. McMahon. That was the catalyst for what was probably one of the most successful storylines in the latter part of the 90s and what went on to become the Attitude Era. And I think that period of time in 98, starting in 97 with that Vince McMahon promo and then executing on that promise by Vince McMahon throughout the early part of 1998 had a lot more to do with the shift in in viewership and and success between WCW and, and WWF than anything else. Do you think there's anything you could have done differently that would have kept WCW on top? Or was it strictly that they sort of doubled down and copied your formula and they had more freedom? I, look, it was not just that they had more freedom. You know, they, they recognized that they needed to change the presentation. They adapted, adapted a different format. Um, but as is, you know, historically been the case with WWF and Vince McMahon, when he decides he's going to do something, he does it really big and puts 100% into it. And I don't think there was anything that we could have done. You know, we had played out the NWO. We, we were kind of... Now, I don't want to say recycling story, but we certainly were not at our peak at the at the time that he decided he was going to unleash the Attitude Era, even though he probably didn't know what the Attitude Era was when he unleashed it. But right. what became the Attitude Era, he just he went he went full bore. And to answer your question, no, I don't think there's anything we could have done. Let me ask this. You said, you know, you didn't really know or he didn't really know what he was unleashing. Um, but when you talked about you sort of living on the hype of the NWO and not really creating as much, just sort of, I hate the phrase resting on your laurels, but maybe that's what it was. You're riding the wave of the NWO. The thing that does happen in September of 97 is Goldberg debuts. And nobody could have ever predicted that Goldberg was going to be the success he was. But fast forward, and we've covered this in July, he main events at the Georgia Dome and beats Hulk Hogan. What a big moment it is. July 6, 1998. I still remember the date. I remember where I was when I saw it. It was a big moment in wrestling history. I think a lot of people assumed, and we're going to talk about this later, so we'll table some of this conversation, but I think a lot of people assumed, maybe even Hulk Hogan, that when Goldberg had his first loss, it would be to Hulk Hogan, that if Goldberg is going to beat Hulk Hogan, that at some point that favor is going to be returned. And I know you've tried to debunk that, but it certainly feels like when you go through the, well, he, he beat the ultimate warrior and blah, blah, blah. He always found a way to avenge the loss and not necessarily from a selfish standpoint. It did big business. 
we didn't really see a return Hogan Goldberg match. And when we, we're going to talk about it today, but instead of him being in the main event of Starcade 98 and having a way to maybe screw Bill Goldberg out of the title at Starcade, he's instead pretending to run for president and create a spectacle on NBC. We'll talk about NBC in a little bit. But he's not in the main event here. Was there ever consideration when you... Let's go back to July of 98. Did you think at some point maybe Hogan Goldberg could have been the main event for Starcade 98? No. It's a good question and a, and a valid one, valid observation. And perhaps we should have. Right. <laughs> perhaps we, you know, in, in you know, thinking about that question as you were laying it out, um, what a great idea that would have been. Right. But but that wasn't that the, no, it didn't occur to us. You know, we looked at the, the idea behind July 6th in, in at the Georgia Dome was really um and uh, there was a couple things. One is um we needed to get the, the show back on track. We needed to do something really huge in order to try to regain the momentum that we had previously. First and foremost, that's what it was. Um secondly, you know, I, th I think Hulk needed to become vulnerable as a character to a degree. And that was also part of the equation. But we never really thought about it. And I'm almost embarrassed to admit it. We never really thought about using that match and that moment and all that hype and exposure to set up a rematch in December. It probably would have made a lot of sense. Where were the fuck were you when I needed you? Well, as you said last <laughs> week, I was, I was popping pimples. Uh, so I wasn't there. You know, in spite of all that, you know, it's, it's fun to sort of relive these moments and say, woulda, shoulda, coulda, man, you guys did, according to the WCW Nitro book, which we've pushed really hard. We, you agree that Guy Evans did the best job of recapping. He, he just, he not only recapped, he just a phenomenal job doing the research, real research, not just talking to marks and stooges and people that have their own agendas, but he went right to the sources and key management who, who affected just about everything during that period of time. So yeah, it's a very credible book. Uh, but in that book in 1998, he said that you guys grossed $188 million, which is an incredible sum of money, especially for a company that when you took it over was losing cash and making really a fraction of that. So it's easy for us to sort of armchair quarterback what woulda, coulda, shoulda creatively. But $188 million, Turner had to be tickled with that at this point, right? They really weren't, ironically. Um, by 1998, the reality of the Time Warner-Turner merger and the beginnings of what was going to end up being the AOL Time Warner-Turner merger and acquisitions really began to, to, to become obvious. And the only thing that anybody cared about and I'm talking about on the finance side of Turner Broadcasting at a very high level, was EBITDA. You know, and I, I can't remember what EBITDA stands for, earnings before interest, uh, depreciation, taxes, amortization, whatever the fuck it is. That's right. Um, I had I, never even heard of EBITDA before that, that period of time. Um, to me, it sounded like the Ebola virus. I thought it was a <laughs> fucking disease. But that's all anybody cared about. And what I realized was because that at that at that period of time, the valuation of Turner Broadcasting was the most important thing within the minds of people who had 
massive amounts of stock options and were vested in Turner Broadcasting because the higher the valuation of the company, the higher the sale, the higher the stock value, the more money all of these people would make, including yours truly, by the way. I just didn't know it at the time. But the more money these executives who were vested in the company would make uh, upon the completion of the, of, of the merger and the acquisition. So everything, it wasn't about how much money you made, how much better you did last year than this year, how much better you did that list this month than last month, all the normal things that people would pay attention to. It was all about, you know, every operating company within the Turner Broadcasting portfolio had to, was f forced to find a way to have an EBITDA of no less than 18%. Wow. Now, here's what's interesting, and this is something that you and I haven't really discussed all that much. At the time, WCW's EBITDA was much higher than that. We were literally making a significantly amount, a significantly amount more money in terms of our EBITDA than a lot of operating units within Turner Broadcasting, which is what made us vulnerable. All of a sudden, it was like, well, wait a minute, WCW's over here. They're really not that significant compared to CNN or whatever the other operating unit was that they were comparing us to. Let's take a little bit of their revenue and allocate it over here. Let's take some of these expenses over here that fall into the miscellaneous group. Let's shift them out of that and let's shift them over here to WCW because WCW on the balance sheet was called other we were basically non-existent. We were a miscellaneous category unto ourselves. So it was very easy to shift money around, and it was all legitimate. Uh, it, it's uh, th There's a term for it in the, in the world of accounting, um, but it was standard operating procedure. Reallocation? It was, re well, it was not reallocation. There's another term for it. I'll think of it before we're done. But um, it was allowable. It was standard accounting practices, if you will. It was fucking WCW. But we got hammered because of it. That's why, even though we were, we were, you know, it was a demand, it wasn't a request, it wasn't a suggestion, we had to produce another show for, for Turner Broadcast or TBS, but nobody wanted to pay for it. Well, WCW's got enough money, they're way ahead of their EBITDA, they've, you know, they can afford it. Let's, let's allocate all those expenses to them, we're not going to charge TBS anything for it. They'll get the content, they'll get the ad sales. WCW will carry the expenses. <laughs> okay, good for everybody else, sucked for us. So there was a lot of that legitimate accounting practices going on, but it, it hurt us badly. You and I have never talked about this, and I'm sure you're going to tell me to fuck off in the most polite way ever, but realistically, let's switch seats for a minute, and let's pretend for a minute, instead of being the guy who's sort of running this division for Turner... Now you own WCW. You're the owner. You're the Vince McMahon. You're the you're the sole owner of WCW. How much money do you think you would have personally made in 1998? Just guess. I mean, I know what you actually earned. You've told me before, and it's you know a right. fraction was, of what I'm about to say. I was in a I was in a half a million to when Which it was all said and done. Fucking absurd. I didn't think you were going to share it, but really process what we just said. Gross revenues for this company are nearly two hundred million. The dude you're talking to right now made half of one. What the fuck? Hypothetically, if you owned it, profit in the Bischoff account, what do you think it would have been? Oh God, I'd have found a way to end up with at least ten percent of that pitch. There's no <laughs> way you make less than thirty. Like in my head, you're so profitable. I mean, as you said. 
if it was, if, if everybody had an edict of 18%, I mean, let's just round it up real fast. That's 36 million. I mean, you, you're, I mean, you're, you're 30 million bucks for what you created in 1998 that you weren't really happy with. And you've got all this external pressure, but I mean, I guess selfishly, I'm glad you didn't because you're doing a fucking podcast with me. Right? <laughs> yeah. Otherwise I'd be in Hawaii throwing coconuts at a tourist on the beach. There you go. <laughs> me and Sonny Ono, we always used to joke about that. If we ever hit the big time, we're going to, we're going to buy, this is years ago. We don't talk about it anymore, but we're going to buy, you know, property, you know, next door to each other on the beach in Waikiki so we can, you know, drink all day and throw coconuts at the fucking tourists that are walking by. <laughs> well, I like it. One of the things I've always wanted to talk about is the TV guide deal, because it's such a big deal at the time. And it feels like, I don't know, another lifetime ago that TV guide was even a thing, much less the most widely used publication in the world. And this is around the time when there's four wrestlers on the cover. The WWF has the undertaker and Steve Austin. You guys have bill Goldberg and Hulk Hogan. How did that deal come about? And how excited were you guys to be on the cover of TV guide? And did they request Goldberg and Hogan or did you guys pick Goldberg and Hogan? Uh, it really, if you look at that, you know, the TV guide situation at that time, it was more like an ad buy. It was marketing. It would have come through our marketing department. It's much like the, uh, Hollywood, you know, walk of fame. You know, everybody thinks if you get your star on the Hollywood walk of fame, that's like this big, it's like winning an Oscar or something. It's really not. It's, it's transactional. So if you were in the business, I'm sure there's some criteria, but I'm, I'm not really sure what it would be. But if you're in the entertainment industry and you want to spend X amount of money to have a Hollywood a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, you too can have your own star. Um, and that's basically the same thing as being in TV Guide. And as, as, a, as far as who goes on the cover, that would have been our, our input because he who writes the check writes the rules. Hang on. You're saying that? TV God, you guys paid to be there? Yeah. It's transactional. It's marketing. Oh, man, that is this entire time, because we've talked about this a million times with Bruce on the other show, and he talks about what a great honor it was, and they're plugging the hell out of it on Raw, and you guys don't even mention it. And so I've just been poking the bear on the other channel about why would they not even talk about it? Because it was a fucking ad. That makes total sense. Well, I mean, it was an ad. There, there is some criteria, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like they're going to put anybody you know, that's doing a YouTube show that four people a week watch or, or impact or whatever. They're not going to put that, that company or that brand or that property on the front of TV guide. So you've got to have a fairly high profile. And I guess to a degree, it is kind of an honor to be invited to the party, but you still got to pay for your meal. <laughs> He said, great, you get an invitation to the party and it's really cool because it's TV Guide and everybody believes that TV Guide is like, you know, Time or Newsweek or whatever. Um, it's not. It, it's 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 transactional. It's the same reason that I, I took out half-page ads in the USA Today yeah. um, because we knew that we would get morning DJs who are looking for content, looking for material and something to talk about. Uh, they're living in the sports page of the USA today, you know, five days a week. So TV guide was much the same thing. It's a way to get people talking about your product, especially people in the television industry. You're not only reaching the consumer who's checking out at, you know, their local grocery store and seeing a TV guide right at the cash register. That's cool too. 
But people in the television industry are also looking at that. Advertisers are looking at that because they're, they're wondering what kind of investment are these people putting in themselves. If they, they want us to spend advertising dollars in their in their property. You know, what are they doing? How are they marketing themselves? And that's so it was as much of a business decision as it was a PR decision or a business win as much as it is a PR win. Well, there's a lot of business decisions to be made here. Meltzer would say a major topic of the week is the future of talent like the giant Chris Benoit, Ray Mysterio, Dean Malenko, Chris Jericho, and even Eddie Guerrero as all their deals are coming due. You recently re-signed the Steiner brothers for a big raise. They were earning, according to Meltzer, around 315000 a year. Now they're going to be more than double that, somewhere between five hundred dollars and $700,000 a piece. So if you cut it in half, six hundred ish uh, but there's lots of, uh, talent sort of thinking, maybe I should go over here now for years and years, everybody has looked at the guaranteed money from the WCW organization as being the best gig around, but because the creative tides have turned and maybe the top is sort of cloudy and cluttered here in WCW, they feel like there's more of an upside creatively and maybe potential to do better in the WWF, even without a guaranteed contract. Um, Lots of folks are going to resign, including Benoit, Malenko, and Eddie Guerrero. They basically agreed to term shortly after Starcade, which Meltzer would say is roughly 1.35 million over three years. But the guys who aren't willing to play ball, you can see it on television, at least according to Dave Meltzer. He says that Jericho is probably one of the strongest interviews in the business at this time, but he drops the television title to Conan without any interview time, which is a clear indicator he's out of here. And allegedly we see the same with Eddie Guerrero, who's normally not going to be the type of performer who would lose to Billy Kidman on TV, but he does here allegedly because he hadn't resigned yet. And so if we don't know your history, we can't push you. So you're going to lose. And it's reported that you gave an ultimatum to Ray Mysterio jr. That if he doesn't sign the new deal with a substantial raise, you're going to pull the offer. And here's the thing that I had never seen before in my research this week. I found that Meltzer wrote Benoit went so far on November 22nd on a WCW internet audio interview saying that if all things were equal, he'd be leaving when his contract expired at the end of the year, which caused Bischoff to throw a fit in the middle of the pay-per-view when he found out and Bischoff did later apologize for his reaction. Do you even remember that? Absolutely not. Never happened. I don't remember it because I don't recall. I don't recall because it didn't happen. Big difference. Um, this is look. I, I know much has been written about my bombastic temper and how mean I was to people and aggressive I was and cold-hearted I was. I, you know, that became the narrative. You know, prior to that, it was like I was so easy. That's where easy E I think probably came from. You know, I was so easy to get along with, and and talent felt like they could um, get what they wanted out of me. I mean, that was the narrative. It wasn't true. But that was a narrative. Oh, the team just wants to be buddies with the talent so they can manipulate them and they get whatever they want. And, you know, he's not really in control of the company. The talent is. And I, I mean, I've heard it all over the last 20, 20 some odd years. And, and even then I was hearing that nothing was further from the truth. You know, there were some aspects of it, I guess, that were true. I did like to get along with people as opposed to not. But the evil Eric, you know, kind of hard to get along with, you know, monster that was part of that narrative. It's just not true. It's not that I didn't get hot. I did. There's a lot of things that would upset me, but you know, that I you know blew up in the middle of a pay-per-view. That bombastic shit never happened with me. I shouldn't say never. That's not true. 
you know, it, it did happen, I'm sure. And there were times when I would get upset, but my reaction to being upset, it wasn't nearly as colorful um, as the narrative would make it sound. Lots of other guys were re-signing though, uh, including Sting, who re-signs a four-year deal worth around six and a half million dollars. Uh, the Giant, of course, which we've covered in our archives, is not going to re-sign. Everybody knows at this point he's not going to. And allegedly, guys like Mysterio are going to be offered four fifty to five hundred ish. That's where you know they're they're hoping to land on the WCW side. And talent like Juventud Guerrera find themselves signing for substantially less. $200,000 range is what Meltzer would report. But he he sort of insinuates that maybe some of the guys are re-signing deals that they wish in hindsight they would have waited for and negotiated a little more for, but they didn't want to be squashed on television. How big of a, and I don't know, that fascinates me. And it is a different time. Wins and losses certainly don't matter as much today as they used to. Do you remember there being leverage on your side? Obviously they've got this. Well, I could always go to the WWF threat in their negotiations. Do you remember there being something on your side where that was like, well, listen, we can't push you. So we're going to have to have you put over such and such or so. No. And and again, I'm not, I don't want to suggest. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week you're here is in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen that that wasn't always um, in the background in, in, in implication, you know, at any time, depending on the timing of a negotiation. Um, if you're, if you're really close to the end of your negotiation, you haven't come to a deal yet and you've got a plan for the next month's pay-per-view or, you know, television or whatever the case may be, you, you've got to know if you've been a top talent and getting a big push, it would be fucking stupid of any promoter yeah and i've and i've done it by the way just for the record i'm not saying i'm i'm (laughs) i'm guilt free on this issue but it would be a huge mistake for any promoter to allow themselves to 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 get overextended and make a commitment to talent and make a commitment creatively make a commitment in advertising and marketing and all the collateral materials that are involved in supporting what you do in pay-per-view which amounts to tens sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars depending on what we're talking about for a promoter or business manager to you know make those commitments for a piece of talent that you're not sure is going to be around next week would be about as stupid as you can you can possibly hope to achieve on any given day so it's that's always there, but it wasn't like, all right, either grab that pen, you know, or, or, or grab your job boots because we're going to job you out until the day you leave. That, that never happened. It never happened with me. 
I never inferred it. I never suggested that that would be the case other than a no ticky, no laundry incident with our good buddy, Chris Jericho. Um, that just wasn't the way it was done. Well, one of the things I enjoyed was, uh, the comparison written here between you and Vince McMahon. This is from Dave Meltzer at the same time. It is a common reaction that Bischoff's differing attitude than McMahon makes him much harder to work with. Bischoff bullies talent in a way where they feel bullied and is more standoffish rather than warm in people's relations, which works with some people who are into the inherent phoniness of the business, but they are the distinct minority. While McMahon is a lot smoother and more complimentary in dealing with fragile egos and in being convincing with his often phony sincerity. So that's a backhanded compliment, I guess, for Vince McMahon when he says that, well, he's probably better at being phony than you are. What do you make of that statement? You know, it is kind of sort of in a inverted universe, I guess, a compliment. Um, but he also spent the majority of before he got to the very end of that talking about, you know, well, it's because Vince McMahon's better at being fake. That little, you know, half a dozen words there at the end of it. He spent the majority of that time talking about why Bischoff bullies talent. Where the fuck did that come from? You know, the narrative about me, especially during that time, was, you know, that I was so easy to get along with. It was where the easy E came from. I mean, it, it, you know, talent could walk all over me. All you had to do to get something changed is go talk to Eric Bischoff. You know, so in, on the one hand, there is a false narrative that, that makes me sound like this pliable, you know, glob of clay that, you know, talent could just manipulate any way they wanted to. And then there's the other narrative when it's more convenient or fills the, the agenda uh, where I'm this evil bully. Bully. Where, where the fuck? Who, who did I ever bully as talent? I mean, and, and particularly when you compare my style to that of Vince McMahon and what we know. So, yes, he does at the very tail end of that soliloquy, you know, kind of backhand compliment me by taking a piss on Vince McMahon. But he does really spend the majority. What, what you hear when you read through that and what the reader probably read when they read through that is, oh, Bishop's a bully. Vince McMahon's smooth. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, I don't know. It's it's just funny. It, it's, it's just typical of Dave Meltzer. I mean, I – you know, and the truth is I probably fell somewhere in the middle of those two narratives. You know, there were times when I was probably too accessible or I, you know, wanted a relationship with talent that was probably not as cold and well-defined as it should have been. We'll use the term well-defined as opposed to cold and for two different things. But, you know, there are times when, when I allowed my personal relationships with talent to probably spill over into a too familiar category. I'm, I'm guilty of that. Um, there were times probably when my judgment about certain people was affected by the fact that I was friends with them before I got into a management position. I'm human. I'm probably guilty of that too. Nothing stands out, but I'm sure it's true. But to suggest that I bullied people, Jesus, it's well, funny. I'm glad that we're talking about some behind the scenes goings on because the bad boys at WCW are starting to rear their heads here in 1998. Scott Hall has a wreck in November of 1998. Uh, I believe it's the 25th. He falls asleep at the wheel and he's in orange County, Florida, and he rolls the car three times. He's wearing a seatbelt and just has a bunch of cuts and bruises. And he's a little swollen on TV. 
but he wasn't even hospitalized. Do you remember this wreck? Yeah, I do. And this, again, there were so many things going on in contrast to 1997 when it was, you know, we could almost do no wrong. I mean, it, it, Nitro was so hot late 96, throughout 97. It, it you know, they, I don't know who used to say it, but it was a saying I heard all the time. It's so hot right now, you could go out and take a shit in the middle of the ring and people would stand and cheer for it. I mean, that's how ridiculously over and successful things were in 97. But internally, behind the scenes, forget about what the numbers say, because the numbers sometimes reflect really what you did the year before. You know, it's not a real-time thing. You know, people are making decisions about pay-per-views because of the quality and the success and, and all of the momentum that you created three, four, five, six months, even a year before, right? It's it's not immediate as immediate cause and effect as people would like to think it is sometimes. But by this time in 98, regardless of what the numbers said, it was – it, you know, where the WWE is really coming back. They came out in November of 1997. Vince McMahon, for the most part, acknowledged that his, his product sucked because we've been pretty much, you know, kicking their ass and waxing them like a Brazilian hooker for the last year, year and a half. And when Vince McMahon came out and said, oh, we're going to embrace an entirely new creative, you know, strategy. It's like, okay, cool. Well, nobody knew what that was going to be. Nobody that knew that that was going to be what became the Attitude Era. Nobody knew that that was going to involve Mike Tyson. Nobody knew that that was going to be stone, the emergence of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Nobody knew all this. Maybe you know, WWE did or had an idea. But as viewers and as competitors, we didn't know what that meant. It didn't really rattle my cage. I kind of chuckled when I saw it. It was kind of like a half-assed compliment like Dave Meltzer just gave me a few moments ago. Um, but – what happened was really um, monumental. You know, the Mike Tyson thing cannot underestimate that because I think, you know, the re there's so many things that have to go right when a talent emerges like Steve did, Stone Cold Steve Austin did. You know, the timing has to be right. The character has to be really right on the money. There has to be enough people around that character um, to, to help him rise to the top that matter. You know, you can't just do it on your own. You've got to have you gotta be surrounded by some good opponents and people to work with. And the moon and the stars and you know, the entire universe was just completely perfectly aligned for WWF in ninety-eight. And they spent by this time now, we're talking about the end of ninety-eight Starcade. For the for the previous eleven or twelve months, not only was the WWF <clears throat> really um, they were no longer breathing down our backs. They were they were pretty much winning, you know five out of six rounds at this point. We not only had that to deal with, we had the contractual, like you know, the convergence or confluence, I guess, of everybody's contracts, you know, so many people's contracts coming due at one time. And then we had the internal crap that we were really, you know, it's understated. Not too many people talk about it because very few people were really involved with it and knew about it. But there was the whole, you know, acquisition turmoil and, and change that was going on as well. So we were literally fighting on three different fronts by this point. Eric, I'm not sure what happened there. I asked about Scott Hall's wreck. But that was one example of of some that's my point. There were so many things going on at that time. This was just one more and it, it almost felt like uh, what else? Right. You know, okay. okay, great. What else? He's got a, a situation here. This is his fourth or fifth car wreck. In 1998, uh, at one point 
He wrecked three cars in a month and even two within 24 hours. And his wife is going very public, not only with the local news there in Florida, but she's even doing an interview with Mike Mooneyham, who most wrestling fans know was a newspaper writer and his newspaper man in South Carolina. And he wrote all about, uh, her troubles and, and her side of the story, including a comment from her where she says the only way to save his life is to walk away from the entire wrestling industry. And that's not the end of the bad boy news in WCW. Scott Steiner has to plead guilty on aggravated assault and making terroristic threat charts or or charges rather from earlier in this same year. And this made news everywhere, including the AJC right there in Atlanta. But the idea is he's trying to take his pickup truck into a closed lane and a guy named Paul who worked with the Georgia department of transportation is directing traffic and won't let him go. So Steiner says, move or I'll run you over. And then eventually gets out of his car, makes the threat again, gets back in the car and then runs into him. Not hard, but just enough to say, Hey, listen, I'm still going and taps him. He's not injured, but it is enough to where when they press it, uh, he's in trouble. He's on probation for five years here has to pay a fine. Uh, a few thousand dollars, not a major deal, but still this is not good news when you've got your guys all over the news like this and chat me up. What do you remember about behind the scenes, the Scott Hall and Scott Steiner boys will be boys stuff. It was, you know, kind of like the Scott Hall thing. All these things are just all happening at once with Scott, because we all have been around Scott, and you get kind of numb to the way he sometimes, and he wouldn't do it all the time. It was, you know, for the most part, Scott was easy to be around. But there were times when, for whatever reason, whatever triggered Scott, um, he would be, you know, half half nuts. And you get used to it. You know, you'd see it, and you, you kind of knew that it really wasn't going to escalate to the point where anybody was really going to get hurt. Um, but it would, it would be damn scary, you know, all the way up to the point where it kind of calmed down. There was always, you know, Scott was always on that edge where it looked like he was going to completely explode and tear somebody limb from limb. But usually it never got to that point. Something would either he'd calm down or he'd walk away or somebody else would break it up or whatever. So, and you, you see that happen enough times you go, okay, that's just Scott being Scott. You know what I mean? It's not like every time he blew up, he you know he put somebody in the hospital. It wasn't that dangerous. But when you see it over and over and over again, you say, oh, it's just Scott being Scott. No, he'll get over it. Don't worry about it. So I could see it happening. But and again, this was a different time. You know, 1998 at the time, there wasn't the the heightened sensitivity towards bullying. You know that there there is now. Obviously, you know, decades after this, you know, if this if if something like that were to happen today, <clears throat> we would have been forced to no matter how we felt about him or how valuable he was, he would have had to have been you know t- terminated, suspended, sought treatment or whatever, and that would have not come from me because I felt that that was the right thing to do. That would have come from Turner Broadcasting, you know, from from the the the, the risk assessment division of Turner Broadcasting. There would have been lawyers involved in that, but it was 1998, and wrestling was wrestling, and it kind of just went away. So it it was a pain in the ass. I do remember it. It was an issue, but not nearly as big as it would be if it would happen in today's environment. 
let's talk a little bit about, uh, Tuesday nitro Meltzer would say it appears they won't be doing Tuesday nitros anymore. TNT asked for shows every week in December, but WCW tried to convince them otherwise because there is no way to go to a fourth hour of TV without the audience being comatose, the wrestlers being exhausted and the announcers working on fumes. It appears the November 24th show will be the final one. And it did a 2.43 rating. How serious was TNT about wanting more Tuesday nitros? Um, just remember the conversation we had going back to EBITDA. <laughs> um, they did, they wanted more and more and more programming. The challenge was they didn't want to pay for it. That was, that's again, when I talk about the intercompany politics and the maneuverings and the acquisition and all of the impact that that had on not just WCW, by the way, this is not just WCW. This is every operating division within Turner Broadcasting. Any, any division within Turner that was not um, a charity <laughs> had to, to manage their finances completely different. And they wanted more content with no additional funding. So it was, it was horrible. It was tough and no concept at all of what it actually took to put on, you know, a, a two, let alone a three hour show. Now a four hour show they didn't have any idea what it really took to put on our show each and every week. They took it for granted. Let's talk about some more behind the scenes going on before we get to the show. Uh, the Sandman's coming in here and Meltzer would say the plan for Sandman appears to be in the role of a best friend for Raven while growing up and Raven's mother will send him to WCW to try and get Raven out of his depression. So they'll start off as a tag team around this same time. We saw Bam Bam Bigelow come in and both of these guys were, were staples in ECW and you get perhaps a bad reputation for stealing ECW talent. What do you remember about Bam Bam and Sandman coming in? Sandman, I just dug. I didn't really, I mean, I knew of his character by this time um, because people had told me about him. Diamond Dallas Page talked about him all the time. Um, so I had become aware of him, uh, more so than some of the other ECW talent. Bam Bam, obviously I knew from WWF. I mean, it wasn't the first time, you know, ECW didn't create Bam Bam Bigelow, but Bam Bam, I was well aware of, um, just because of other things that he did. I, you know, I, again, as I, I so, so often do, I sat, sat there and I did, you know, part one, part two, where I literally did a watch along of Starcade 98. So I could be more familiar with it when you and I visited it. And one of the standout notes I have is Bam Bam. What, a, what an amazing, he could move as big as he was. He was so fast and so believable. I really, I underappreciated. There are two people that I, I really look, looked at this week's show because I hadn't seen it before, as you and I have discussed. It was the first time I've looked at Starcade 98 since Starcade 98. And to see some of that talent there, and there are two pieces of talent that I went, wow, did I miss the boat on that? You know, Bam Bam was one of them, even though he'd been exposed, you know, he was in ECW, he's in WWF, but he still had a, just a truckload of talent. And he was a very unique character. We could have done much more with him. And the other one was, uh, I'll leave it. I'll leave it for the breakdown of the matches. But Bam Bam was definitely one of them. Let's talk a little bit about uh, a meeting you held on December 14th. Um, Meltzer would say that you held a meeting for all the boys beforehand and ran through that Kevin Nash and Diamond Dallas Page are going to be joining the booking team with yourself, Dusty Rhodes, and Kevin Sullivan. 
And Terry Taylor is going to be moving out of that department and over into production. And you're heavily stressing that all the wrestlers be easy to find at least two segments before they go on TV for any fine tuning for what they need to do. And you really stress that they have to hit their time marks better because it's a live television shoot. And you're saying that a lot of guys have gone over with their interviews or their matches, and it really messes with the entire timing of the show. And you're promising that you're going to change things forever. The wrestling business is going to be changed in the first of the year. You've done it before and you want to do it again. And you say to the crew here, you watched last week's show, which will be the December 7th show. And you believe that WCW has a better television show and that the WWF has only gained this momentum by gaining the attention of teenagers because it's more vulgar to the point that it's going to affect their business. Um, and you also say that you're not going to tolerate changing finishes and you put your foot down on this very day when Stevie Ray complained about doing a job for Conan chat me up. What do you remember about this meeting introducing Kevin Nash and DDP and creative? How did that come about? And what do you remember about Stevie Ray and Conan? And you sort of drawing a line in the sand of we're not doing that anymore. Uh, I, you know, I, I do not remember the Stevie Ray Conan incident, so I'm not going to deny it or try to, to make stuff up on the fly. Um, it, it may or may not have happened. So the fact that I don't recall, it doesn't mean it actually happened by the way, just a little caveat, um, in terms of the rest of it, um, part of, you know, what was relayed to me through you just now, part of that, I, I do recall talking about, you know, the meeting, for example, and as you read it back to me, this is where I'm, and we're going to talk about this on another show. And I, I hate to tease something that I'm not going to go into detail on, but by this point in time, I didn't trust the people I was working with above me. Not, not the, not the people that I worked with in WCW, although there were some of them I didn't trust necessarily, but there was, there was so much going on with internal broadcasting. So many, so much shifting, so much politics, so many people jockeying for position at the highest levels of the company, at the very highest levels of the company. And all of that ran downhill. We were all affected by it, not just WCW, everybody. But by this time, part of that speech that you just read to me that Dave wrote um, is me taking a company position, which is something I'd never really done before. My, my my meetings, however, you know, <laughs> off the mark or not that they were, my passion, 95, 96, 97, you know, even into early 98, you know, my, my view of the company was one of um, – I mean I really looked at it as a – member of my family. I felt that close to WCW. It was, I wasn't doing it for the money as we discussed last week. You know, I could have negotiated a much, much better deal for myself in 96 or 97 than I did because I wasn't doing it for the money. A large part of what I was doing it for was the passion for what I was doing, the challenge of taking something that, you know, Ted, that only Ted Turner believed in and everybody else in the company wanted to bury and the challenge of turning that into the manifestation of Ted Turner's original vision. That was a big damn deal to me. My loyalty to Ted, my loyalty to Turner Broadcasting. I was motivated by a lot of things. By this time, <laughs> at this speech, I was not motivated by the same things. And so much of what you just read to me was bullshit. Wow. F fessing up. It was, you know, 
when I was standing there talking to that to, to the boys or whoever was in the meeting, I'm assuming it was probably production people too. Um, and and I was talking about how I was absolutely convinced that the WWE is going to fail because their vulgar programming, you know, that appeals to teenagers is going to boomerang on them. I didn't believe that for a fucking second. That was the company's position. That was ad sales position. That was what they shut me down with when back in July of that year um, when when I was being told how to produce a wrestling show by a bunch of people who never watched a wrestling show. And, and f- by this time, at the end of 1998, for me to stand up there and say that, that was not me. That was me taking the company line. And that's what – even hearing you tell me what I said, and I believe it was probably reported pretty accurately, if not word for word, um, I, it, it just pisses me off. It, I'm reliving. I'm I'm triggered. Oh my god, I'm triggered. The, but that's what it was. I want to get off the subject. I'm starting to get pissed off. You did a promo on Nitro in this same episode, December 14th. It's in Tampa, sellout crowd, and you come out with Gene and do a promo, and you're talking shit to the fans, and you talked about ruining careers, and that Ric Flair's tired and old, and then you're going to show off your fists, and Rick runs down, you run away. And he chases you and then he does a big promo, brings up all the big names and he's getting really, really fired up. And then he backs off clutching his heart and sits down in the corner. Gene calls it exhaustion and down goes Rick. Gene's calling for somebody. Arn runs down. Fans are looking concerned. The trainers come out, put Rick on a stretcher and take him away. And Shivani says that, you know, Rick has a pectoral muscle issue or something. They're trying to freestyle what could possibly be going on. But the implication is that it's a heart attack. And eventually you say later in the show that Rick suffered a mild heart attack and you apologize to him and ask for his forgiveness and forgiveness from the fans. And this segment has gotten a lot of criticism, but it did a huge number. Uh, the promo with you and Rick did a 5.9, the heart attack angle dropped it to a 3.7 and Rick wrote this when Atlanta Falcons head coach, Dan Reeves suffered a heart attack. Eric and diamond Dallas page had a brainstorm on an airplane. When they got to the arena, I was told you're going to have a heart attack in the ring tonight. Don't tell anyone, not the boys, not your family. Well, I had to call Beth. There was no way I was going to let her watch something like that on TV and think it was real. But just about everybody else was kept in the dark. Um, what do you, how can you, what the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? What's the problem with it? To not tell anybody and you've got his real life friends, you know, I mean, even Neil Pruitt. Do you think, do you think that they would not know once they got backstage and honestly, my, the touchy feely. Oh my gosh. What are people going to think? How are they going to react? Guess what? If, if, if everybody would have believed it was actually happening until Rick got backstage, I, I, I would have been thrilled because that's television. That's wrestling. It makes it work. Yes. It's, it's, it's death. It's, it's a real life situation. Guess what? So is half the stuff that you watch in primetime television in a drama. 
You know, they're they're dramatizing something th- that is very emotional. Sometimes it scares people to death. Sometimes it makes people cry. Sometimes it makes people angry. That's what entertainment does. And that's what we were doing. Yes, it's it's borderline. But guess what? It's freaking wrestling. This isn't like the PBS NewsHour or or Sesame Street. It's yeah. And I would I would do this as you're laying that angle out to me. And by the way, I watched it when I saw Star K ninety eight and had the well, I'm gonna watch along on Patreon. They they played a clip from the week before of that. And I thought that is fucking brilliant. So for whatever heat or whatever that supposedly that segment got, um, I thought it was awesome. Neil Pruitt's an and by, the, and, and, and by the way, I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you, Conrad. Just we got a little timing delay here on Spike or on Skype. But you know the, the idea that you know Diamond Dallas Page and I were on an airplane came up with an idea. Bullshit. That's not how it came about. Not even close. But whatever. It, it makes good for good print. That's that wasn't Meltzer. That was Ric Flair. Just so you know. Oh, I, I don't care who it is. It's just it didn't happen. Okay. Well, either way, you had the idea, let's make him have a heart attack, and it fooled everybody. The Crockett's were fooled. Uh, Neil Pruitt, the voice of the NWO, he was fooled. He says, I can normally tell when things were contrived, but at that point, I was sold hook, line, and sinker. Oh, yes. I love Neil Pruitt for saying that. That is awesome. I thought for sure it was the last of Ric Flair's days. Um, And a lot of people are saying that you're so paranoid about people leaking their ideas that they had you, they, or you had them thinking Rick was going to die, but believe it or so not, what? even though, so people, what? even though people have been critical of this, Rick was not, he wrote, while I was allegedly convalescing, Eric made a big production out of apologizing to Beth, David and Reed inside the ring. Then my boys were suddenly attacked by Barry Windham and Kevin Nash while I grabbed, or I'm sorry, while Bischoff grabbed my wife and kissed her. Despite my history with Eric, I wasn't upset by the move and neither was Beth. It was just business. So all these years later, you're pretty proud of this. I, I, why did I get, I should have gotten a fucking Emmy for that. Where's my Emmy? Where's my walk of fame? Come on, let's do a GoFundMe here on 83 weeks so that we can buy me my star on the Hollywood walk of fucking fame for one of the best segments ever produced during the Monday night wars. Yes. I will take credit for that. The whole point of the match here, or the whole point of this segment here is to set up a match with you and Ric Flair at Starcade. Rick would write of this. Um, Eric liked to portray himself as a martial arts expert. Even so the idea of him fighting a guy, my size with my experience was kind of stupid, but so were a lot of things in WCW at that time. This is the same nitro where Steve McMichael no shows. And that's pretty much the end of him in WCW. Do you remember this being the end and, and him just sort of not coming back or what led to the end of Mongo and WCW? Well, it was a little bit more complicated than just not coming back, but let's just say Mongo had recreational issues. <laughs> Mongo liked to party <laughs> and it, it got in the way and it became an issue. And I, I like Steve a lot. When I first started working with him, we got along really great. We social, we hung out together after the shows, he and his wife, Deborah, before she got in, involved on camera and my wife, Lori, you know, would often have dinner together after the shows and a couple cocktails. I really liked Mongo in the beginning towards the end here. Um, the lifestyle, you know, kind of the, 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 the off premises activity really got to him. Let's just put it this way. Him and Scott Hall were really close friends during this time. 
Let's talk about Hulk Hogan. He announces his retirement at the end of uh, November. It's a huge angle. You guys are managing to get on mainstream TV and he's going to retire and perhaps run for president. And there's all the silly fun stuff. Um, Hogan and Randy Savage had a meeting in mid December with you to talk about what their angles are going to be when they come back in. And allegedly one of the things they like the idea of is Hogan and Savage as a babyface tag team feuding with Hall and Nash, which seems like that's right out of the book of bad ideas. Because at this point, Hall and Nash are cool. Um, this didn't really happen. What, what I, don't do you, I don't think any of it happened. No. I, Hulk Hogan had no interest in, in, in being a babyface at that point. I mean, I... <sighs> Again, this is where I always get in trouble because you know I'll get a lot of feedback. Oh, Bishop doesn't recall. Let's make it clear: the fact that I doesn't, I don't recall it, is more than likely because it never happened in the first place. Chat me up though. Um, uh, his presidency angle. I mean, what was the payoff on all that? There was no payoff. It was just a character. It was a stunt. It was a way to get some free press. It was a way to get Jay Leno talking about him. It was just him being full of himself and, and having fun, knowing that he was going to get a ton of media for saying it. By the way, you know, you and anna- him announcing it on NBC and then you saying, we've got something that's going to change the wrestling business, what you're really talking about. And we're going to table this and talk about it another time. We've touched on it briefly in the archives, but I really want to focus more on Starcade is you guys had a deal in place with NBC and this is just mind blowing to me that it didn't happen, but it was supposed to happen come February. And we'll talk about the NBC deal another time. But I know that a lot of times, you know, when, when we say, oh, you had these big plans and it was going to change everything. This NBC deal is something we have not spent enough time exploring and we need to do that soon. Don't we? Well, we do. And, and again, let's save it because it deserves a lot more attention than we're going to give it as a, as a talking point on this show. But that was the big idea that, that meeting, that confidence, you know, that part of my speech was true. I believed it. Let me, let, let me rephrase that. I believed everything that I said when I talked about an idea that was going to change, you know, wrestling in WCW. A long-term strategic relationship with NBC would have done exactly that. And I had been working on that relationship at this point for about a year or a year and a half. And it was coming together better than I had hoped or envisioned when I started it. So, yeah, I really did believe that. Obviously, it didn't happen. But that's a really – and again, we'll talk about why it didn't happen. We'll go into all the details of that. But this is just another huge – issue between me and AOL time Warner at that point and the people that I had to answer to. I mean, this is where I started getting pretty ugly to work with the, for them, the, for them. The December 17th thunder is the one that was in Charlotte. That's where you did the whole, I'm going to apologize to the flares. Then I'm going to kiss Beth, uh, Beth, a good kisser. Uh, you know, I think Beth, <laughs> you know, and I hope Rick is listening to this because even not. though, you know, he's moved on and, and, you know, life with Fifi is probably absolutely everything that they wanted it to be. But I think Beth secretly wanted me like when Rick was married to her. <laughs> I mean, I, I know it's Ric Flair and I know the legend of Ric Flair and I know all that. And I, you know, you know, standing, you know, next to Ric Flair, I can't compare, you know, with, with, with Ric Flair. I just don't have it. On the other hand, I think Beth was really digging on me because when I when I when I watched it back, you know, when I saw it this past week, I'm watching. Wow, I remembered how much she really got into that scene, 
and wanted to rehearse most of the afternoon. Now, I don't normally rehearse things, but in Beth's case, we found time to kind of break away from everybody and spend a little time backstage. So she was into it, you know, and there's, she was a character actor, you know, and I didn't look at it as anything other than, you know, really trying to perfect the performance because that as a performer is what it's all about. And Beth embraced the character. She was great. You know, between Linda McMahon, Stephanie McMahon, Miss Elizabeth, those fat chicks in Iowa during sold out, I would say that Beth stands out amongst one of the best lip lockers in the industry. Let's talk a little bit about Ric Flair, man. He's back on the December 21st Nitro. It's at the TWA Dome. You break all kinds of records there. Huge gate, even bigger than the Georgia Dome, believe it or not. $914,000. And Meltzer says in better weather, you would have broken a million. Uh, the paid attendance is approximately 29,000 for a nitro. You come out and do a promo, you're booed heavily. Flair comes in, chases you away, cuts a promo through tears, uh, says the word shit can, and it doesn't get beeped where he says you tried to shit can his career. I mean, he is fired up here, uh, calling you a no good rotten bastard. And then you walk, walk out and mock is crying and say stuff like, be careful with him. He's got a bad heart. And you're saying, arrest him and flair is screaming. I will kill you as God is my witness. So you guys are pulling out all the stops to build up this pay-per-view match. What do you remember about the heat here in the TWA dome? In other words, we need two GoFundMe pages, one for the previous segment and one for this. This is great. I mean, the heat. Was the, I mean, Ric Flair's Ric Flair's, you know, in, in the TWA Dome, he was over. He was, he's over everywhere, but there's certain markets where he had, the, you know, the most history in, and that was one of them. It was phenomenal. I, and just hearing you describe it, and again, seeing it the other day, you know, people can say what they want. And Rick was right. You know, the idea of me being in the ring with a guy like Ric Flair, it's farcical to begin with from, a, from an athletic competition, you know, point of view, from a sports entertainment point of view. The entertainment part is there. The sports part, certainly not. But it's still, the, the audience wanted to see it. I had enough heat that they, a sufficient amount of heat that they wanted to see me get my ass kicked. And Ric Flair was Ric Flair. And it worked, you know, it, it, certainly not a five-star match in any arena anywhere in the world, but from a, from the perspective of being a, a highly entertainable storyline, it was the, uh, pay-per-views here, Starcade 1998 draws a huge sellout, 16,066 fans paid an incredible $584,000 at the gate, another 114 grand in merchandise. It's the largest gate ever for a WCW pay-per-view because they weren't running domes for pay-per-views and it's the fourth largest gate ever in the history of the company. Um, that's probably enough to where you didn't need blue chew, but Billy Kidman is in your first match and he's retaining the cruiserweight title, beating Ray Mysterio jr. And Juventud Guerrera in 14 minutes and 55 seconds. Meltzer would say about as good of a match as possible in a triangle match. He really dug it. I did too. You watched it for the first time. What'd you think? I didn't like it at all. Really? I, no, I didn't. I didn't. And this, you know, by this point, I think it's safe to say, you can go back and look at our pay-per-views or our nitros. You know, we wanted to start them hot. We wanted something really good in the middle and, you know, we wanted to nail the third act as best we could. And, and for the most part, leave people going home happy and cheering, right? That was the, the basic formula. 
Yes, there were variations of it from time to time, but that was it. And in this, in Star K98, going back and looking at this, first of all, I don't like three ways or triangle matches as they refer to them. Uh, I just don't. And I, the reason I don't is because the story that normally would unfold between two people who were competing for something, there, some kind of artificial stakes, um, if they've done a really good job, you make you know, you as a viewer believe that they actually care about those stakes and you get caught up in their journey to get there. That's the basic psychology behind um, a simple match. When you get involved with three ways like that, that narrative, not only does it, is it hard to translate it from backstage segments and all of that to actual physical action in the ring, the translation is very hard. <clears throat> in a match like this, it was fucking non-existent. There wasn't Anything about this match that made sense until about the last two or three minutes, which brings me to another point and another note. Um, this match went, went on way too long for a lot of reasons, and we'll discuss it as we go forward into the second match. But it felt like it was a 45-minute match. It just dragged and dragged and dragged, and it dragged to the point where even though it was Billy Kidman, who I have a ton of respect for, and at this point was you know, if not at the peak of his career close and Ray, same thing. Um, it, by the time they got done, their ass was dragging. They looked like a couple of blowed up heavyweights out there. And the very thing that made the cruiserweight division of guys like Eddie and Ray and Billy, um, so fun to watch, you know, they, they left it back in the locker room about halfway through the match cause they were gassed. And it was apparent in the style of the match and the moves and the rest holds and all, all everything that they did in the last half of this match until they got into the finish looked like something that you would see, you know, in a, in a heavyweight match. So it, I, I didn't like it. I gave the match, I gave the finish a 7.5. It was a pretty good finish. Um, the match I gave a 4.0. I just, I just didn't dig it. Most of it a three and a half. I didn't hate it, but it is interesting that. Kidman gets the win here. It's a breakout year for Kidman. I mean, this guy comes in basically as an enhancement talent. I remember watching him a lot on WCW Saturday night. And then he turns heel, joins Raven's flock, eventually breaks from them, turns face, and then beats Hooventude for the cruiserweight title. I mean, he's got a rising star here in WCW. Yes, because of Tory. You know, I was really hoping that you were going <laughs> to say that. Well, let's talk about something that maybe is a little less <laughs> meaningful. Norman Smiley and Prince Iakea are our next match. They go 11 minutes and 31 seconds on fucking Starcade. Uh, Meltzer would say this, this started the show killing segment. Tony Schiavone spent most of the match hyping the main events later in the show. And I don't understand the psychology. Everyone watching has already paid their $30 and it isn't like they're going to flip over to La Femme Nikita and miss the main events. The match got a dud rating, and it is hard to believe that Norman Smiley and Prince Iakea are on a fucking pay-per-view here that doesn't have Hulk Hogan, it doesn't have Randy Savage, it doesn't have Scott Hall wrestling a match. But somehow, so in other so in other words, you're saying because we finally are giving these undercard guys an opportunity to showcase their 
skills and her talents to connect with the audience. We're pushing through the glass ceiling that has previously up to this point been dominated by guys like Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage and Lex Luger and Sting and all the uh, Ric Flair and all these old guys. But now all of a sudden we're giving a guy like Norman Smiley and, and Prince IK an opportunity and we're being criticized by the very fucking people who criticize us for relying too much on the older guys and not giving the younger guys a chance. Are you talking about hypocritical bullshit or not? What'd you think of the match? Here's what, do you have a bell? Do you have a, like a ring a bell sound effect? Mm-hmm. Like ding, 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 ding. Do you have one of those? No. Okay. You should get one or I will, but this is where we should ring the bell. For I think the guy who, if we would have spent the time, one of the most uh, I mentioned, you know, Bam Bam Bigelow is being one of the two guys that really st- sh- just stepped out of this pay per view when I watched it the other day, and I thought to myself, "There's a guy I should have done more with, Norman Smiley." I think Norman Smiley may have been, or maybe is, one of the most underrated performers of the Monday night wars era of all the people that should have gotten a big push that didn't, that really deserved it, but didn't get it. I would put Norman smiley at the very top of that list based on his performance on this pay-per-view where I was giving him an opportunity to step out into the limelight and no longer keep that limelight strictly isolated on some of our top older stars, pushing the guys in the locker room, the young guys. That's what I was doing. But I really do think Norman smiley, all kidding aside, I think he, if you look at this match again, as a fan, you're probably looking at this match going, eh, I don't give you know a damn about either of these two guys because they hadn't had the push. They didn't have the promotion. They didn't really have characters that were well-established, but go back and watch this match from a technical point of view. And Prince Iakea was no, you know, Ray Mysterio, you know, he was, he was green, but he did a great job. And I think Norman Smiley, I really wish we would have, what a character. It's so much potential, like Ernest Miller in a certain respect, guys that came in, you know, Norman, obviously, from a technical perspective, was light years ahead of Ernest Miller, but two guys that just had that charisma and that character. But, you know, in Ernest Miller, he he came in a little too late in in Smiley's uh, situation. I just don't think anybody really looked at him as that guy um, when he walked through the door and we missed a lot of potential in him. I've always been a Norman Smiley fan, but it is interesting that he's getting pay-per-view time here in the biggest show of the year. And some of the bigger stars are not, but one of those big stars is out next. Scott Hall comes out doing basically a baby face interview saying that 98 wasn't his best year, but it was all his fault. And he brings up Nash and fans start cheering him. Why isn't Scott Hall in a match here? Because at this point in, in Scott's life, you couldn't depend on him to show up the next day. You just didn't know what you were working with. Definitely did not want to build a long-term program or even a month program around a guy who may or may not be in detox, who may or may not show up even if he's not in detox or jail. Um, there was no good reason to put him in a match. Had I put him on a match, you would be asking me a much different question right now. Why in the fuck would you put a guy with Scott Hall's track record who may or may not be able to show up based on the, the car wrecks he's been getting into this month alone? Why would you put him in the main event? That would have been the question. Had we put him in a main event or even in a meaningful match. 
Perry Saturn is out next and he pins Ernest Miller in seven minutes and seven seconds. Um, dud is the rating it got in the observer. What'd you think of Perry Saturn and Ernest Miller and their match on the biggest show of the year? Um, again, you know, the idea was to showcase our younger talent who previously had never really had the opportunity to be showcased on a pay-per-view. That's how you get young guys over, right? So that's what this was. Um, but I agree. It was a, you know, when I'm rating matches, by the way, I'm doing it on a scale of one to 10. I'm not doing the four star Dave Meltzer thing, but I, I gave them, I gave the finish a 6.5. The finish was actually executed. Okay. Very little real story in this match. Uh, Ernest was awkward in this match with Perry and it's some, you know, some guys, sometimes guys just have better chemistry with, with certain people than they do with others. And I think this is a case where just styles and chemistry, they liked each other. They got along. There was no heat or issues or anything like that, but it's just the physical chemistry. Sometimes it's easier than, than others. And it wasn't easy here. The match itself, I gave like a five, just flat. Uh, the finish was not too bad, but it was way too long, way too long. And that was, you know, same thing with the Norma Smiley, uh, Prince IK match that we talked about a few mo- moments ago. That match would have been really good if it was about 33% shorter. And that's kind of the pattern that I saw. The first match with Hoovy and Ray, and by the way, Eddie Guerrero got involved in that, which is because he started up a second match with Kidman. And it just felt like it was a 45-minute segment. You know, and I say that on Patreon, we were watching it. It's like, oh my God, I was literally looking at the time code in that first match and it, because of the way it was set up, it felt like a 45 minute opening match. You talk about investing TV time in your younger talent, your middle of the car talent, your Ray Mysterios and Hoovies and so forth. That match got a ton of time. That match probably got three times more time than a main event match normally would on a pay-per-view. And it was too long. And same thing here. Ernest and Saturn just went too long. At this point, this doesn't feel like Starcade to me, but let's keep going. Flair does an interview where he uh, says that he's agreed that the horseman should be banned from the building. A lot of people think it's foreshadowing, but either way, next up, Brian Adams and Scott Norton beat Dave Finley and Jerry Flynn in eight minutes and 56 seconds. That's right. Brian Adams, Scott Norton, Dave Finley. And Jerry Flynn are in a match here at Starcade 1998. It gets a quarter star. Uh, what do you think of this match here on WCW Saturday Night? I mean, Starcade. <laughs> See, this is what happens when you give young, up-and-coming mid-card Fuck guys a chance. That. People Come like on. you are smart asses and critical, and uh, who the hell booked this shit? Well, guess what? You know, if you want to get somebody over, you got to give them some TV time. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm trying as hard as I can to defend this, and I can't. I actually fast-forwarded through it. Still, man, this is just, what the fuck is this, man? I mean, look at the names we've had in here so far. And don't get me wrong. I, I really enjoyed, um, you know, the, the Kidman-Eddie Guerrero match, and, and I enjoyed the Kidman-Mysterio-Hooventude match. I know you didn't, but those were fun to me. Norman Smiley and Prince Ikea. What? Perry Saturn and Ernest Miller. Huh? And now this one, Brian Adams and Scott Norton and fit Finley and Jerry, Jerry fucking Flynn. This is unbelievable to me that this is on pay-per-view and we've got this major star power. That's not even on the show. 
fucking Kevin Sullivan. I love that it's always somebody's <laughs> fault. You're having fun with this. The, the, next, the next match here, Conan and Chris Jericho. This is These are at least two big stars here. Jericho's going to come out and do a total Billy Graham promo. That's for the TV title. Conan's going to get the win and retain here in seven minutes and 27 seconds. Meltzer would say it's uh, too short, but there's some cool spots here. He gave it two and a quarter stars. The star power is at least here. What did you think of the match? I didn't dig it. I was underwhelmed, you know, when I, I, obviously I knew it was coming up. I was looking forward to watching it because there's hardly ever been a Jericho match. I haven't really enjoyed. Um, I gotta say, and Chris, if you end up hearing this or more than likely, you're going to end up reading tweets about what I'm saying right now. This was not Jericho's best outing. You know, if you watch that match, go back and watch closely in the WWE network as I did. It's, it, you know, the, the promo was good. You know, Chris is great as a character. The promo was great. The beginning of the match was okay, but it was not Chris's best work in terms of timing. You know, you go towards the end of this match, you see, you know, Conan getting up and running all the way across the ring to hit Chris with a run. I think it was a running clothesline of some sort. And, you know, the camera's right there and Chris, you know, missed his timing, you know, enough so that it looked obvious that he was throwing himself up over the top rope. And it was just a couple of those types of things that happened towards the end of this match that took me out of the moment. And those are the types of things that you normally didn't see with Chris. I mean, normally his timing was excellent. And again, it may have been the chemistry here. Conan, Conan is, you know, he's a great performer. He's absolutely, I think, one of the best characters of the Monday Night Wars era um, as a pure character goes. But his work in the ring was... Um, awkward sometimes it was just a, the way he was built, the way he moved. Uh, and maybe this is a chemistry thing here, but Chris didn't, Chris was not Chris's best outing. We're here. Two things I've wanted to talk about. And I've wanted to talk about this since we first agreed to do a show together. Why am I getting nervous? Why are you scaring me right now? When you start, here's the deal. When you, when I, I can feel, you know, you're sitting in Huntsville, I'm in Cody, Wyoming, we're 15, 1800 miles apart, but I can feel where you're coming from when you get ready to pounce on me. Now, if it's your typical stuff, oh, fuck this shit, I can, I can feel that coming. I can see the wheels turning in your head. I know the minute it's going to hit my ears. Right. But when you get real quiet and you pause I know that shit's coming. That Alabama shit is coming. You're going to roll tight on my ass about something here, and I, I'm a little nervous about it. You know what it is, motherfucker? You beat No, I don't. You beat Ric Flair at Starcade. The fucking event was named after him, a flair for the gold. His crowning achievement 15 years prior to this was the granddaddy of them all, and now we've just been rolling, and he's headlined countless Starcades. This he before Shawn Michaels was Mr. WrestleMania, Ric Flair was Mr. Starcade. Five years prior to this, he put on a world class performance against Big Van Vader in a match that was just to save WCW's main event because Sid was out and he was in and he made it better. And that's what Flair did in this era. And now you make him have a heart attack on TV, make out with his wife, and you fucking beat him on pay-per-view. Anything else would have been predictable. Jesus Christ, bro. <laughs> you sound like Vince Russo right now. 
I know. I'm just, but I'm just fucking with you. He's actually believes this bullshit. Uh, <laughs> I know. I really, again, looking back at it, I mean, look, the, <laughs> I can't, I can't defend it. I'm not going to try. Um, but it was entertaining, right? I mean, it did get heat, right? And that was kind of my job to piss people off, right? If it would have been in the main event, it would have been absolutely mandatory that Ric Flair go over because you want people to go home happy. But in this case, this is, this is a story that we wanted to continue and no better way to continue it than to have the most unpredictable thing that could possibly happen to happen, which is, you know, my fucking milk toast out of shape, you know, ass beating the legend Ric Flair, but it did kind of suck. I'm sure. Kurt does a run in and, and Meltzer would say gave Bischoff the Guinness book of world records entry for the largest set of brass knuckles and clocked <laughs> Flair with it and pinned him. He gave it two stars, which I can't believe. Um, that's just slightly less than Jericho and Conan. Holy shit. I should have negotiated for mon- more money. I was like Lucha quality. Listen to you. <laughs> he says that, uh, Flair rips your shirt off. And he says, quote, big mistake. He was selling for someone who looks like that. (laughs) Really? I honestly, I thought the same thing when I was watching that. And I, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm not not trying to shill Patreon here, but to prove my point, even during the watch along, I I pointed that out. It's like, oh my God, Rick. I mean, Rick was really selling for me and it, and he did such a great job selling, but it wasn't believable. You know what I mean? There was just no way, you know, I was out of shape at the time and I was a chicken shit heel. I wasn't supposed to be a badass. It was supposed to be just a, you know, a figment of my imagination, the whole martial arts thing. It wasn't supposed to be dangerous. It hadn't been with anybody else I had been in the ring with unless I had help from somebody. Same was true in WWE. So it was supposed to be my gimmick as a heel that I pretended I was a badass and I wasn't. But unfortunately, looking back at that the other day, you know, Rick actually sold for me. Like, you know, and there was one kick to the head that actually when I saw it on tape the other day or on the show the other day, I went, oh, shit. That wasn't supposed to happen because I I back like around kicked him in the side of the head. You could tell by the way his head moved. It wasn't a working. He wasn't selling it. it. It actually landed. But. Other than that, everything else I did looked so lame. And for Rick to sell it like it was real, um, that, you know, eh, if I could go back and revisit that, I would. What would you have done differently? Um, I don't think I healed it up enough. I, I don't. I would have stacked the deck against Rick so that going into it, everybody pretty much knew there was no way he was going to win. But all they really cared about was seeing him beat my ass. And I would have finished it with you know, him overcoming all the odds. However, I would have stacked the deck uh, against him and given myself every single advantage because I would be a chicken shit heel and that's what they would do. Um, And then when it looked like that was finally going to work and I was going to get my win, I would have had Rick find a way to kick my ass and then get glommed by whoever I was surrounded with and let it go. Because all the fans really wanted to see, they didn't care who won the match. That was like a bullshit stake. You know what I mean? That was like, you know, implied that it really fucking mattered. What what they really wanted to see was him kick my ass. They didn't want to see Ric Flair get his hand raised above Eric Bischoff. They expected that. What they really wanted to see was him beat my ass. And I would have given him more 
time to beat my ass, but I wouldn't have beat him. That that's the honest answer. <sighs> what? I don't know. It's just what you sound fucking disappointed. Like you wanted to rip the shit out of me. I'm just, but when I give you an honest answer, it's disappointing. Rick said, he wrote this in his book. The two of us were backstage at the MC Aston in Washington, DC. When Bischoff asked, what do you think about me going over tonight? Tomorrow at Nitro, we'll work again and you'll go over. Rick said, fine. And then you asked, how do you feel about getting juice? And Rick wrote, I didn't object to that either. I never mind bleeding if it served a purpose. You didn't talk about the finish with him until the night up. When did you decide, hey, I'm going to beat Ric Flair at Starcade? First of all, I didn't decide. I wouldn't have picked that finish. I never, I've said this before, and um, I guess I'm going to keep saying it. Um, I, I didn't get involved with finishes. Oh, no, we I heard really, that last week, motherfucker. Huh? We heard that last week, motherfucker. Because it's the truth, and you keep asking the same questions over and over again. It's I didn't get involved with the finish. I didn't say, hey, look, I love Ric Flair. I do. You know that. He knows that. But me, just think about that for a second. Me coming, hey, Rick, what do you think? Maybe I'm going to go over tonight. Are you fucking kidding me? That never happened. I would never have done that in a million years. Now, if we would have all talked, you know, by the way, Rick, you know, Rick, Rick, if anybody probably came up with the idea, it was Rick or is Kevin and Sullivan and, and, and Rick, because they really did talk a lot about stuff more than I talked about with Rick when it came to finishes. I would have not ever gone up to him the day of the event and said, hey, Rick, you and I are having a match. How about I go over tonight? Uh-uh. Come on. The next night on Nitro is the night where he got in the ring, ripped off his jacket, asked who made it, pulled off his sweater, asked who made it. And he's saying, oh, it's Armani. It's Perry Ellis. And he goes into his suitcase and starts throwing stuff and says, this is how I travel. You jackass. He starts taking off his Rolex and his alligator shoes and he's ripping up money and he's getting naked saying that, uh, he's going to get you. And this is a promo that. You know, people have talked about forever because he handcuffs himself to the top rope and says he ain't going home until you get your ass out here. So while I may hate the creative here or the, the finish at Starcade and the idea that you have a victory over Ric Flair at Starcade, this promo that it gets us the next day sort of makes it all worth it. It's classic, isn't it? You know, and Rick is, when you say, boy, that was a classic Ric Flair promo. That's it. That's, that's a lot. Cause he's done, he's done more classic Ric Flair promos than anybody else has done combined. I mean, he is, he's done some great stuff and he's, you know, and again, I talked about this on Patreon the other day when Ric Flair isn't involved with a story or an angle. And it's the type of angle that he can actually believe because he's Rick is an actor. You know, he, he's, he doesn't know he's a method actor, but he's a method actor. And when he really wraps his head around a storyline, because to him it's real. I mean, it's hard to describe this and I'm not, I'm not the person to be able to do this effectively, but 
I'll just speak for myself. When I can, when I put myself, and Steve Austin was a perfect situation. You know, there, there's certain situations. You know, Ric Flair. I've done it. I did it twice with Ric Flair, where we took our real life situation and went, okay, we got that over behind us now. Let's figure out how to make money with it. When you can do that and tap into those emotions that were driving your emotions back when it was real, and you you can effectively weave that into a, a fictional storyline. A guy like Ric Flair is at his very, very best. He becomes that character. He's no longer a professional wrestler who's trying to become a character or trying to portray a character. He is Ric Flair living the moment, living the emotion that he's feeling in that promo. And I promise you, he was feeling every bit of that. In his mind, in that precise moment when he was doing those promos, he believed everything that his brain was telling him. That's what made it so great. And yeah, the finish would have been fucked up and there would have been a better way to do it. We didn't have to beat Ric Flair at Starcade. All that is true. And, and admittedly, you know, looking back at it now, being 20 years wiser and a lot more experienced, I could have easily done it differently with a better outcome. But to your point, this promo, however it would have ended up at Starcade, as long as it would have led to something like this, it would have been right. Because this is great. This is some of the best TV we've ever done. Well, next up, we've got some, uh, some bona fide stars, uh, diamond Dallas page and the giant, they're going to go 12 minutes and 45 seconds. Meltzer is going to be critical of the giants appearance saying whatever weight he lost, he's already gained back. He only gives it uh, three quarters of a star, but you've get, at least got some big stars here on the show. what do you think of DDP and the giant? Um, I agree with Dave's, you know, assessment and it's, you know, by this time giant was, you know, while he was still working for us mentally and emotionally, he was checking out and it was obvious. And, and Paul was never really that when he was with us at this early part of his career, he was younger, more immature, more easily affected by his emotions and the things going on around him. He was, I'm trying to say he was moody. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd be on a little bit of a roller coaster. Um, he was a little moody here, but he still showed up. And, he, you know, he and TDP have, had and probably still do a great relationship. So they were good friends. Now, once Paul got in the ring, even though I agree with Dave, you know, he, he looked sloppy. He didn't look like he cared, but once he got in the ring, um, he sold really well for page. And again, I, I attribute that to their personal relationship and to a certain degree of professionalism by Paul. It's not like he was a, you know, a sandbagger where you just go out and go through the motions, but, I think his selling was pretty good. I, I I think Paul did a decent job for what it was. Um, I wasn't like blown away, but it was pretty good. You know, hard to have a match with a guy like Paul. You know, what do you do with a seven foot four inch five hundred pound guy? How do you get him to sell? What's believable? You know, that was the challenge with Paul. And it was by the way, it's still the challenge with Paul, and has been the challenge with Paul in the seventeen or eighteen years he's been in WWE. He never became the Andre the Giant of WWF as Vince believed he, he could make him when he committed a 10-year deal at a million dollars a year to hire him. It never really happened because it just in today's day and age with what people expect out of the product and because it's no longer a territory and you can't cycle people in and cycle people out like you could in the old territory days where a guy like Andre could, you know, spend, you know, three months, four months working into the Northeast. And then by the time he got, you know, to the AWA, you know, once a year, you know, return of Andre the giant that, you know, everybody would run scared. You'd have a month or two of programming. You don't have that anymore. 
Now for a character to be over, he's got to be out there. He or she needs to be out there. And by the way, have you seen some of the online promos that Becky Lynch is doing over in WWE? Fucking phenomenal. We'll talk more about that later. But now in an environment like today where you've got, you know, to keep someone over, uh, you've got to have them out in a major program every single week. And with a guy like Paul, that's really, really difficult to do. Well, confidence is key. Let's talk about why we're here, man. Everybody knows what's coming. The most controversial finish. I mean, we thought last week couldn't be more controversial. Uh, this long buildup. But now you've got the golden goose. WCW is making more money than ever before. And it's because of this man, Bill Goldberg. You're announcing his streak at 173 and 0, which is just incredible. And eventually, I guess what goes up must come down. Kevin Nash is going to beat him here to win the world title in 11 minutes and 20 seconds. Now Goldberg's going to come out to a lot more cheers than Kevin Nash, but there is a visible and noticeable sort of undercurrent of fans who were sort of anti Goldberg. There are some Goldberg sucks chants early, but quickly drowned out these really loud Nash sucks chants come in. It has a big fight feel. Uh, we see, you know, all the shenanigans happen here, including uh, a disco run in Goldberg's going to spear him a big low run in Goldberg's going to close line him off the top. And then Scott Hall comes in wearing a security shirt and electrocutes Goldberg with a cattle prod, which Nash didn't see. And then Nash jackknifes Goldberg to win the title and a huge pop. When you go back and watch this, the crowd erupts. Now Meltzer would say it's probably for seeing the title change. And everybody's just shocked and surprised. But he says after the show and off the air, Luger and Conan come in the ring for a celebration and it's majority booze. He would put it at 60% booze. He gives it two and three quarter stars. So much to talk about. I don't even know that we can possibly fit all of this decision-making process into one show, but let's take a stab at it here. When did you guys decide a We've got to beat Goldberg. B, we're going to do it at Starcade. C, we're going to have Kevin Nash do it. And D, we're going to electrocute the motherfucker. Probably started talking about that about August or September. Um, keep in mind, again, go go back now in in the context of this time. How how many more people? How, how much more could we have add to the unbeatable mystique of Bill Goldberg? We were running out of ideas. There's just a certain point where you're going to step into, you know, bizarro land. You know, hands up, admit, I hate the finish. I wish I wouldn't have done it or, or approved it or allowed it to happen. But it is what it is. But in order to understand the thought process, we're not going to debate. You know, we'll, I'll stipulate, Your Honor, that in fact the finish was fucked up. I'll stipulate that. We both agree to that. Now, why did we agree to that? Oh, excuse me. Why did why did we agree to, to, to let that finish happen? Why did we want Goldberg to get beat? I think that was the question. Because we were running out of shit for him to do. At some point, the audience, you know, as Dave pointed out or you pointed out, whoever made that observation, that there was noticeable, you know, booze about bill goldberg you know i'll 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 go so far as to say that you know that was kind of like the the roman reigns effect you know when no matter what 
when Vince did, you know, the crowd was going to boo Roman. It had nothing to do with Roman's ability or skills or anything else. It was just like the audience is kind of tired of having something forced down their throat. That's where we had gotten to with Bill Goldberg. 173, you know. I guess we could have arguably, if we wanted to, you know, sit back and armchair quarterback and play what if, you know, maybe maybe he could have we could have gotten him to 199 in his his next match would have, would have broke 200, which were you know would have been you know whatever, uh, we could have done that, but hard to keep telling that story, you know, after the length of time we've been telling it with Bill Goldberg, the audience wants something different. Now, unfortunately, that something different came by way of a you know cattle prod, and that was not the best finish. I think available to us, but it, it is, it was what we did. And, uh, unfortunate as it may be, but I think Goldberg needed to be beat in order to get to the next level. He had to become human. He had to be at risk in certain situations. There had to be some real stakes or perception of real stakes by the audience that made whatever match he was going to be in from this point going forward, meaningful. And had story associated with it. In this case, it would have been because he got beat unfairly, you know, by Scott Hall in the interference that, you know, the ref didn't see. That was the choice. That was the process. Why Kevin Nash? Kevin was believable. That's the other challenge with a guy like, you know, Bill Goldberg, who we built into this. And by the way, was not like we had to create the perception. He was a monster. He was a little bombastic. He was volatile. He was unpredictable. He was so intense that, you know, every time you came to the ring, you weren't sure exactly how it was going to end up. That was all real. That was Bill's real character. And that, that energy is what connected him to the audience. They know the difference between a guy walking through the curtain who's pretending to be a badass and a guy who's walking through through the curtain and is living the moment as a badass. Bill Goldberg lived the moment. He, like Ric Flair, when I talked about it earlier with Rick, you know, Bill had the ability because he was so new and so young and so competitive and intense in his DNA that when he came through that, the, that curtain, he believed exactly where he was, who he was and what he was doing in that moment. Now, once he got backstage, he knew what it was. Well, it took him about 20 minutes to cool down. But you know, for the better part of the day, at least, he knew it was a work and this is what we're going to do. But, man, the minute he came through the crowd and that, that, that crowd reacted, that's what triggered you know Bill Goldberg into becoming the character. Um, he was. But at some point, you, you need to tell a story. How many guys were jockeying to be the guy who beat Goldberg? You know, the, if you believe the dirt sheet rumor and innuendo, everybody wanted to be the guy to beat Bill Goldberg. That's a big, big moment, big deal. Do you remember anybody sort of suggesting, Hey, what if not directly, um, I, I liking it, I liken it to probably, you know, what professional lobbying looks like in Washington, DC, where you're out to lunch with somebody and you think you're there to talk about, you know, the weather. And before you know it, you know, you're being convinced that, <laughs> hey, I know this guy who would be really good working over here in this position. So there was some lobbying going on, very discreet, very politically savvy type politicking going on. But at the same time, I think it a lot of guys looked at as that spot is a pretty risky one because if it didn't work, you know, you're the guy that we booked with Goldberg to finally beat Bill Goldberg and business took a shit. It's, yeah, it's, 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 you shit the bed. That's you know, hard to overcome that. 
So I think deep down inside, a lot of people would have liked that opportunity. But I also think a lot of people were really smart and not really raising their hands and volunteering for it. Let's talk about who booked it, because this is one of those who's on first deals. Nobody wants to take credit for it. Kevin Nash says, I wasn't a booker until February of 99. We just agreed that two weeks prior to this, you introduced him and DDP to being on the writing committee. Nash says in the Nitro book that people wanted to see Goldberg get beat, but when he got beat, people went, oh shit, I'm not sure I wanted to see that. And he thinks that's because of all the shenanigans, the run-ins, the cattle prods. And he says, if he went toe to toe and he beat Goldberg with a power bomb, he would have been a God. Kevin Sullivan in the same book says, quote, when they gave me that finish, I said, why don't we hire Barnum and Bailey and have the elephants trample on him too. If he had lost a wrestling match dot, dot, dot. I wasn't the booker then. And Eric and Kevin Nash were doing a lot of it. So it might've been Eric's call. It might've been Kevin's call. It might've been somebody else's call. But when they gave me the finish, I said, please don't do it this way. The finish should have been bills. Got Kevin rocking and rolling. Kevin slumped in the corner. Goldberg goes for the tackle. Kevin moves out of the way. He hits the bows, comes back out, big boot to the face, power bomb. Kevin covers him one, two, three. And Nash agrees. If I had the pen or pencil, I would have booked it that way. With the idea being that he misses the spear, hits the pole, then gets jackknifed. That's the finish. But instead, everybody says, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Who did it? (laughs) They all did it. We all did it. Not they. We. We all did that. Um, It was not one person's idea. This This was a fatal flaw in in the way I, we approached batches and finishes. I've said this before, you know, the reason I hired Johnny Laurinaitis to come from all Japan was because Johnny had a reputation over in Japan as being a great Finnish guy. That's why Johnny came in. I had been looking for my Pat Patterson for a couple of years because it, I, as new as I was to the creative process, it was pretty easy for me to see the pattern and the weakness in our approach. However good our story – and I'm just talking about the NWO and I'm not – you know, it doesn't matter whether it was – pick a match that had a great story that everybody liked during the Monday Night Wars. It, it, it didn't matter how great the story was. Almost 75% of the time the finishes were flat or they're weak or they didn't make any sense, or worse yet, they didn't lead to another chapter in a story. Finishes were our fatal flaw in WCW. They always had been. When I came there as an announcer, finishes were horseshit. I I didn't recognize it as such because I wasn't paying as close attention to that part of the storytelling process. It just wasn't my world. It's not what I was hired for. And I, I wasn't that type of person who sat and analyzed everything in front of me. It's just not me. But as I got closer to the process of creative in 95, certainly in 96, 97, and 98, um, it was a constant glaring flaw. You know, of all the people that we had on the committee, um, Cherry Taylor probably had some of, consistently had some of the better ideas for a finish because they were based in good psychology whether I liked the idea itself or not, at least even if I didn't like the idea, you could recognize that with Terry Taylor, oftentimes more consistently than anybody else, the finish was based in a, in a, in a psychology that made sense. 
and oftentimes led to something else. Whereas Kevin Sullivan, um, his finishes tended to be more shocking, you know, heat inducing, um, holy shit kind of finishes as a, they were, they were not the big, you know, the way he just laid it out there, that's a very basic finish. And yeah, that probably would have worked. It didn't necessarily lead to anything else. It was a great ending. It was a great, holy cow, Kevin Nash, Bill Goldberg, the finish that you just described that Kevin laid out in the Nitro book. Yeah, it would have worked, but where, where do you go from there? Where, where's the heat? Kevin Nash beat Bill Goldberg. Okay, great. End of that story. Now what? See, that's the thing. That's, I'm, I don't want to go off track here. If you, it's it's like when people would come to me, and I, I don't want Eric, to beat what, up on it. Go ahead, go ahead. What the fuck are you talking about? Where do you go if there's a clean finish? You do a fucking rematch. That's what you do. Why? If Why? What's the motivation for? Some, what's the motivation for a rematch? Well, you certainly it, booked one. You booked one for the finger poke of doom, but you didn't deliver it. You swerved and instead just gave the fucking thing no, away. No, 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 no. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about this this particular situation. Fucking bringing up finger poke of doom, which was our fourth episode uh, in the first month of doing this shit. That's just that's just a diversion. No, Let's talk about this match. This. Let's that, talk about this finish that Kevin Sullivan laid out. Had we just beat him, just beat him clean, what would be the motivation? for a rematch because technically he deserves one because he gets a 30-day rematch clause. That's the fucking premise that's supposed to drive people to see the next pay-per-view. Sorry, lame as fuck. He beat, he won 107, but that's in real fighting in, in MMA and boxing. When one guy loses, they do a rematch and then it builds. To that's a not what rematch. this is. That's like saying, yeah, but you know, when you fly the space shuttle, you're able to go to the fucking moon in, in a Cessna 172. It's apples and fucking oranges, dude. Come on. If, if Kevin, let's just stay on this proposed finish if or hypothetical finish that Kevin Sullivan came up with, there would have been no reason, no real reason, other than the fact that you wanted to see a clean finish, there would have been no real compelling reason that people would have bought into to see these guys go at it again. There just wouldn't. You had a, so you have to have a cattle prod for there to be a fucking rematch. No, you have to. No, I, I stipulated early on. Your Honor, that the cattle prod was a bad idea. Then what that was, should it have been then? If it can't be clean and it can't be a cattle prod, what would you have done? I'm not a finish guy, and that's the problem. Yeah, no that, shit. It that is. was you fucked no, up two that, main events, the two biggest shows. You fucked up 97. Now you fucked up 98 because you didn't. No, I didn't care. fuck up 97. That's your opinion. No, that's your opinion. You know what's opinion. really interesting, Conrad, is because of all of the back and forth in social media about the finish and you didn't have a tan, which is not what I said. I didn't say we beat him because he didn't have a tan. We, we in 97, we're referring now to Sting. I gave you a pretty sufficient, I think, or detailed explanation as to what was going through our mind that led up to that process. No, Sting's head was not in the game period of still, conversation. But you still gave him the belt and then you let him win again, two months later, nothing changed because we needed a story. Yeah. Okay. We needed we, a story. All right. So you need a story the, here. The same is true here. And by the way, before we shift gears now, since you, you entered, introduced 90, 1997 into this discussion, as I was on Patreon last week, and I'm not going to mention his name because he's a really cool patron, but we got, I, I had him call me live on the air talking about how fucked up that finish was. And I asked this individual, I said, let me ask, cause he was, he was watching, he was either watching at home or in the arena. I said, and it was like 16 at the time. I said, let me ask you a question. Did you, 
Did you stand and you cheered? Were you happy? You know, was that the most exciting thing you had ever seen to have Sting, your hero, win the belt? Yes, it really was. I said, okay, now you hate the finish. When did you start hating the finish? When all of a sudden did that event that you were at or watching on TV, I don't recall, when all of a sudden that event that you were so excited about that left such a big impression on you, all of a sudden, when did you start going, eh, I didn't like that finish? And he admitted about five or six years later. Well, that's because five or six years of chat rooms and dirt sheets and discussion. I'm not, I don't mean to poo poo that. I, let me take that back. That's what we're doing right now. I mean, that's what we're doing right now. But, and, and that's what fans do. And by the way, thank, thank God for them. Or you and I wouldn't be doing this right now. And I, I wouldn't be able to, you know, pay my electric bill. So thank you very much for liking, you know, what we're doing here. But none of this controversy about the finish occurred until well after the finish at the finish. Everybody was excited years later. Oh man, they could have done that better. Sting should have got a clean win. What the fuck for? What does it really matter? People think it really matters if a finish is clean or not. And guess what? Sometimes it should be. Sometimes it shouldn't be. It all depends on what you're going to do next. And that's typically what happens when you ask armchair quarterbacks or dipshits like Vince Russo, you know, oh, that's a great story, dude. What happens next? Uh, I don't know. I'll get back to you. You just have a rematch or we'll put it in a cage or we'll put it on a pole or some other stupid shit that doesn't really matter. If for wrestling to work, you need serialized storytelling and sometimes you need a fuck finish in order to do it. Not all the time. And in this case, the kettle prod was a horrible fucking device. It could have been so much better and it wasn't. But the, the, the need for a device like that in order to set up a meaningful rematch with emotion driving it required that that finish not be clean. Well, I don't even in my, in my opinion. By the way, you beat Goldberg on his birthday here. He's turning oh, who gives a fuck? What difference does that make? That That's just I, nothing. Oh. I'm just making conversation. You motherfucker. That's what I do well, here on the show. Well, just, well, that's what I'm doing. Who gives a shit? If we beat him on his birthday, we, I was we, leading we, to the know, point of saying he's 33. I was just trying to give a timeline. My apologies, motherfucker. Now, B B Bobby <laughs> Heenan says. This is the beginning of the end. You killed the golden goose. He's telling Tony Schiavone and Mike Tanay that on the ride back to the hotel after. Do you remember any chatter after or the next day at TV where anybody's like, what the fuck did we do? No, everybody's a genius in private after the fact. Everybody's got big balls after the fact. Um, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't remember anybody saying anything like that towards me or, or in my presence. I, I didn't hear the rumor, but I'm not saying he didn't say it. Or didn't believe it, but I didn't hear that. Kevin Nash says the beating the streak or ending the streak did nothing for him because, of course, he gives the belt to Hulk Hogan on Nitro uh, a week later, finger poke of doom. And he says this was done to give Goldberg a stable of heels to run through and eventually get the title back from Hulk. But he says Goldberg got hurt before that could happen because he punched through the limo window, which is what Nash always says, but that timeline doesn't make any sense. That didn't happen until much later. Chat me up though. Was that the original thinking when you do this? Did you know that the finger poke of doom was going to be where you wound up a week later when you beat Goldberg here? No, no, that, that finish probably didn't develop until midweek. 
after this pay-per-view. So what was the plan when you, all right, we're going to beat him with the cattle prod. And then, well, I think Kevin hit it pretty much on the head. We needed a stable of heels. There needed to be a group of people at the very highest level, um, that, that Goldberg was motivated because of what happened to him go after and to get his belt back. And that part of, you know, Kevin's recall is, sounds very accurate. That's why we did what we did. That would have been the obvious for, for Bill at that point. But we didn't, you know, we didn't have the finger poke of doom finish in our back pocket at this time. Chat me up. If you had it to do over again, what would you have done? <sighs> with this match? Yeah. Um, no, with your clothes and the white side. Yes, with this match. <laughs> what would I have done? Well, I definitely, w- I definitely would have screwed Bill. Beating him clean would have made no sense. Beating him in a way that would have enraged him and justified and gotten people behind him to see him retain his title would have been the formula that I would vote for this afternoon. So I'll put the, put the clean finish to bed right now. It, would, it, it, it was a good idea, poorly executed then, but it would still be a good idea today. Now, how do we make it a good idea with good execution today? You know, that would take a lot of time to, to kind of think through, and, and a lot of it would, would depend on what kind of finishes um, had been taking place. You know, you don't want to repeat something that we saw a month ago or two months ago, if you can avoid it. Um, I would have put a lot of time into trying to think of a creative way to screw them. You know, something a little bit more creative than, than the cattle prod. Um, it was believable, the cattle prod. You know what I mean? It looked like it could hurt. Not too many people have ever been stunned with a cattle prod before, so nobody's going to say, oh, that's bullshit. That wouldn't hurt. So visually, it was okay. But the idea, I think, was just not – you know, when you got two guys, you know, Bill Goldberg, powerful NFL player, intense MMA guy, you know, or that was the perception at that time at least. And then you got Kevin Nash, big, powerful, you know, huge reputation. For the finish to occur, to occur with, you know – a piece of metal with you know five D cell batteries in it was kind of anticlimactic, I guess. Even though the, the you know what happened after the aftermath was pretty decent. No, it wasn't. Hitting, you know, Kev, Kev, well, Kevin hitting him with a jackknife power bomb. You said yourself the fucking crowd just exploded and oh, reacted. I meant the finger. You know, Dave Dave Meltzer tried to make an excuse. For, oh, it's just because they went to see the title change. Oh. No, because they were wrapped up in the fucking drama and the emotion of the match, motherfucker. That's why they reacted. So that part of it worked, but. It didn't play well going into the next the, the setup of the next match. No, it didn't. And you know what else didn't play well? When you put Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake in the main event of the biggest show of the year. And that's what we're doing next week. I'm not done with you, Bischoff. You're going to defend Brutus the fucking that's, Barber Beefcake that's being in the main bullshit. event. That's bullshit that you would pull that out on me right now. You kicked my ass last week, motherfucker. How many people do you need to have tweet you, putting you over for fucking running me through the Conrad Thompson fucking wood chipper? How many of those phone calls do you need to be before you start really feeling good about yourself? Now you need to pull fucking Brutus the Barber Beefcake in a main event out, and you want to beat me like a goddamn baby seal with that? What is wrong with you? I treat you pretty fucking well. I, I give you props. I put you over. I'll even buy you a beer next time I see you. Why do you feel the need to run me through the fucking Thompson Woodchipper every week? Because you hogged all the blankets in Rochester. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Starcade 94! Brutus the fucking barber beefcake in the main event! 
Are you serious? I can't wait! John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.